Good morning again, everybody. Thank you for coming. Sorry, Lauren, I didn't look at you because I'm a sympathetic crier. (laughs) So you're on your own. All right. Well, now that you're in your comfortable chair, I invite you to stand if you're able uh, to join us in the reading of God's Word. We'll be in Ezra 4, 1 through 5. There are Bibles in front of you in the chairs if you didn't bring your Bible. If you don't have one, it's yours to keep. And we are going to read Ezra 4, 1 through 5. And it reads, The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Ezerhadin of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, You may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them away from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. They went on during the entire, this went on during the entire region of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. Let's pray. Lord God, we are just thankful again for this opportunity to come and worship you all together as a church family, Lord. And we just thank you for the ability to do so because of your son. Thank you for your spirit that illuminates the scripture to help us understand. Lord, we also pray for the other churches that's taken place already or that will take place. And we're just thankful that we are just one small part of your kingdom. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, will you just speak to us? Use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, say whatever you don't, don't. We just love you and we thank you. Praise your name. Amen. You may have a seat. So discouragement and opposition is part of life, and that's a no-brainer. I don't have to sell you on that one. Um, and it most certainly is part of our Christian walk. I think one of the, perhaps the most dangerous things that we could do as Christians is assume once we become a follower of Christ, or once we've been following Christ for a certain amount of years or decades, that discouragement and opposition is behind us. Well, that's not true. But a lot of times I think that um, perhaps when we're presenting the gospel to people who do not know, um, we, I think, at least I know, I have to be careful whenever I say the gospel will change your life. Yes and amen. However, that does not take away from hardship. In many cases, at least speaking for myself, and I know many of you can agree, once you surrender your life over to Christ completely, then it gets tough because for a lot of reasons. One, you realize just how sinful you are. But secondly, you come to realize walking in line with the Lord, there's opposition. Now, discouragement and opposition is is a part of life, and it manifests itself in many different ways, but at the core, it is actually opposition to God and the gospel and those of us who carry the message of Christ. 
And whenever I say those of us who carry the, Christ, carry the message of Christ, I'm not talking about pastors. I'm talking about anyone who is a believer in Christ. And I think one of the reasons discouragement and opposition is such a powerful weapon that the enemy uses, that Satan uses, is because we are extremely, extremely susceptible to it, and it's highly contagious. I don't know about you, but usually for me, I can handle the first attack of discouragement and opposition. And to be completely honest, Sunday after church, preach, and then we go home, and all I want to do is eat. And then all I want to do is not do anything. And then after that, the young adult life group comes over, and it's wonderful. And I know I've said this before, and the moment the last person leaves around 2.30 in the morning, I'm just kidding. If that was the case, I'd just go to bed. (laughs) Um, I always, in some form or fashion, by default, tell Natalie, boy, I'm sure glad that's over. And I don't mean it because I want everyone to leave my house, and I don't mean it because I don't enjoy being a pastor. I simply mean it because I have to be careful that I don't think I did a good job or a bad job. I just move on to the next job. That's what I constantly have to do because if I start thinking I'm doing a good job, then it becomes about me. If I start thinking I'm doing a bad job, then it becomes about all of you. And it's not about me nor you, and I love you all. It's about Christ. And what we're seeing in Ezra here is the moment opposition attacks that the Israelites have a choice to make it about them or about their oppressors, or make it about Christ, about God. And again, the attack to the gospel is nothing new. You just have to turn on the news. You just have to have a conversation with someone who opposes. And I could just sit here and just read the news to you. It would feel pretty cruddy, and then we could leave. But the gospel is always being attacked, and it's, it's always, it has always been attacked from the beginning. So this morning, actually, we're going to cover, although we only read the first few verses, verses of Ezra 3, we're actually going to cover Ezra 3, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, because we went through 3, and now we're going 4, 5, and 6, because really at the heart of it, what we're going to see is opposition, 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 discouragement, 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 the preaching of God's word. Oh, let's make it about Christ and then we're good to go. We're done here. That's the sermon. But what we'll see here is really we're going to see some of the tactics here and we'll see that it's nothing new. We'll also see the the discouragement from ourselves and we'll also see that a lot of times the the attack, the the discouragement, the adversity really can start to begin from within. And I titled the, the message this morning, Adversity After Worship, because last week we just talked about how great it was to worship. God lined it up so that way we were talking about worship in our new place of worship, and it was great. But now, if we're not careful, we can assume we are good. We've got our building, just like the Israelites. We are good. We have our altar. We're just going to build a building. We're going to build the city up, the walls. We're good. But just to consider, some of the things that we'll talk about and you can point out is that we're going to see some of the, the tactics that some face. The intimidation, discouragement, 
Let's look at some of the accusations and the legislation because, you know, if you can't stop people, you just get the government involved. But really, first, when we talk about the opposition, I just want to take a moment just to look at the first couple of verses just to explain what's going on. So if you remember last week, we talked about the worship of God. They built the altar. They worshiped God. They did the burnt offering because the offering was completely 100% for Christ. Burnt offering means everything was burnt. There was nothing left. It's, it's a reminder. It's a, it's a foreshadowing. It's, a, it's prophesying of what Jesus Christ has done or will do for them, has done for us. He didn't leave anything back when he died on the cross. He completely died. Then we talked about right after that, what's the next thing you would do is go on a camping trip. They would spend seven days out worshiping God, uh, the celebration of booths, if you will, or tents or tabernacle, they're called different things. Um, And what they would do is they would spend seven days, if you remember, seven days out in the wilderness, out in the desert in their tent, depending on God to take care of their needs. It wasn't only to remember what he did by taking care of their ancestors during Exodus, but also to remind them that Christ is taking care of them right then and there. And again, one of the things that we discussed was if you had a really big, large building project, not only a building project, but a renewal of faith in your people, would you stop for seven days to worship God? And they did. And they were blessed. But it would have been real easy for them to say, well, we just worship you, God. Why is there opposition? So now as we turn and we see that the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, it's important that Ezra describes right from the beginning that the enemies, that they are enemies. Some of the commentaries who are more on the liberal side of things uh, as far as uh, of the scripture disregard the enemies And what did they make it out? Because these enemies are actually the Samaritans of the people. So if you remember, the Assyrians would take some people and throw them all around so there would be mass confusion. So they come, and and we come. They're not named uh, Samaritans yet, but they are Samaritans. They come, and they are enemies. And again, some of the modern commentaries would suggest that the Israelites were wrong for not allowing them to build the temple I spent a lot of time this week looking into it, but really, if it's called enemies, why would you let your enemy help you rebuild the temple? So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, let us build with you, for we worship God just as you do. And we have sacrificed to him ever since King Ezraheddin of Assyria has brought us here. Zerubbabel and Jeshua We'll talk about him in a couple of weeks. And the other leader said, you may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. So why wouldn't they let other people do it? Because what was happening at the time is these enemies, these Samaritans and other people, yes, they did worship the Lord, of God of Israel, but they also worship everything under the sun, literally everything under the sun. That is in part why Cyrus was okay letting the Israelites go back and rebuild the temple. His thinking was, I don't care what God or gods you worship, but if you could do me a favor, ask your God or gods to talk to my God, then I got everything covered. Doesn't that sound like universalism? It is. Universalism is everything goes. All roads lead to heaven. That is a lie. Jesus Christ leads to heaven. 
That's it. But this is even more than just, hey, can we help you? Although we do worship and we do sacrifice to your Lord. And by the way, P.S., you guys have not been sacrificing any animals for 70 years while you were in captivity, but we have, would have been their argument. See, the, again, the Jewish people, the Israelites, only are allowed to sacrifice at the temple. That's it. So they did not, even currently, the Jewish people do not have any atoning sacrifices unless they're doing it in covert, secret places. But technically, they're not supposed to until they get their temple back. That was part of their argument. They were allowing them to come in, but also as a political move. There was 50,000 of the Israelites who had come in and, and to settle in, less than 10% of the people who will eventually come. Uh, it suggested that there was 7 million, 8 million of these foreigners, these local people who wanted to join in. Essentially, it would appear what they were trying to do is, we'll come in and help you build the temple, but we're really going to influence you. And we're going to take you away. And we want to have the power. And we're going to help you, but really we're going to take over. Now the response, the response really just shows the heart of the local residents. Because if they were truly wanting to help rebuild the temple, then there would not be verse 4. Verse 4 says, Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judea to keep them from their work. Well, if I'm on your team... But I don't get to play in the game. Am I going to boo you? No. Praise the Lord. I'm done with jury duty officially as of Friday. <laughs> just so you know. And I only say that just because I want you to feel sorry for me. Okay? <laughs> but really, I was, I was technically dismissed on Thursday afternoon, but I had to be on call just in case something happened to the other ones. The whole time I didn't say boo. I mean, I wanted to, but I didn't say boo. I, I was on the team. It even reminds me whenever I made the baseball team as a kid, just the warm the bench. I didn't boo my team. Just because I, did, I made the team, but I didn't get a play. What kind of awful teammate would I have been? There were some players I was hoping that wouldn't do well so I could play, but other than that... But these local residents in verse 4, they tried to discourage them because at the heart of it, it really wasn't about the temple. It was about them taking over. So what did they do? They discouraged. They frightened people. They bribed people. It was awful. It was awful. So this discouragement came, and, and, and this really affirms what their no good, rotten deeds. And we'll see this play out more and more uh, further when we get into Nehemiah. Now, why would you come to offer help if you're immediately going against it? Now, I, I mentioned when we first started this series that uh, if you recall my, my description of it, it's, it, Ezra and Nehemiah is really one book, and sometime during the 12th century, 1200-something, they decided to split it in half because they're smart. But really, if, if you see it, the first half the exact first half is written in Hebrew, then Aramaic, and I described it as red, and then you draw a little line, apple, orange, draw a little line to orange, the fruit, you know, and, and you could see it. And this is where the junction is. Now, I have this fancy little timeline here that you can see just because 
I generally talk all over the place, but this time it's not my fault because Ezra wrote it funny. Okay, so if I got to look just to make sure it matches. So the first half, you'll see that King Cyrus allowed them to go. So that would be Ezra 1 up to 4, 1 through 24. And, that's, and then that splits over. And then if we go to the next slide, it's not until about 70 years later that verse 4, Ezra 4, 6, and then 4, 7 through 23 takes place. So there's about, it's, in total there's five different kings during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah that spans about 100 years. But what Ezra does, and that's why I stopped at verse 5 and not to read verse 6, is because he jumps forward about 45 years or so later. And the way that I, I describe it is the way that I talk. Especially, well, if you've ever had a conversation with me that wasn't structured. I'll be talking about one thing, and then all of a sudden, pew! I'll go over here and then try to bring it back, maybe. My dear wife, a lot of times, said, wait, what are we talking about now? much like my preaching. But so what we're so what we what we'll see here is is what he does is he talks about and we'll we'll read the next couple of verses in a moment. He talks about oh and another issue that we had much later. And another issue that we had much later. And then we'll circle back and go to verse 4 and 7 7 through 23. But ver, but Ezra 5 and 6 actually is in the middle. See that the Hebrew writers wrote very poetic. And if we could read and understand Hebrew um, to the core, we would see the beauty of it. But really, the Old Testament writers really focused on theme rather than chronological order. Now, although I talk all over the place, I do like a fancy map to at least help me land. But what, what we're seeing here, and really the whole point of this timeline is throughout all of Ezra and in Nehemiah, Opposition, 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 opposition. So when Ezra starts to talk about opposition, it's just like when your grandpa said, oh, and one more thing. Do you remember back when? And one more thing, and one more thing. So really at the heart of it, he's really trying to point to there's always gonna be opposition. After you worship, after the altar, after the building of the temple, and after the walls, opposition, opposition, opposition. So if we go back, let's just look at some of the ways that the people tried to oppose them. If you look back at Ezra 4, verse 4, 5, what did they do? What are some of the things they tried to do? They tried to discourage and frighten them. Oh, you you won't let us build the, the temple with you? We're going to discourage you and frighten you. And the way that they discourage them is, is basically told them, we're going to do everything we can to stop you from building this temple. They frightened them because they would show up in massive amounts of people. Also, they bribe agents to work, verse 5, against them. They basically hired lawyers to look at their blueprints, this is modernizing it, and saying, we won't approve it. Na, 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 boo, boo. That's what they basically did. And, and this building process has been the smoothest building process I've ever been a part of. However, there were some times, and it's probably because I didn't have to face it directly, that they said, oh, by the way, you also need a... Go away. It's just cutting the red tape. 
And so that's all that they did. So what, what some of their uh, setbacks was, was intimidation. We're just going to intimidate you. We're going to discourage you. We're going to make you afraid. We're going to frustrate your plans. Great, you worship the Lord and you're back and you're really excited and you're ready to go. It's, it's like that camp or retreat mountain high that you have. You're like, yes, when I get home, everything's going to be great. And then you get into the house and then something breaks. And you're like, this is not what was supposed to happen. God, don't you remember I just got done worshiping you? You owe me. I mean, we may not say that, but kind of sometimes in the back of our mind, we think that our performance gets us further along with God. Our, our worship gets us more intimate with God, but it does not reward us. Our reward is in heaven through Jesus Christ. But yeah, I want an easy life. I want everything to go smoothly. So the next thing that they did in verse 6, and now we'll, we'll read some of verse 6, and just says, uh, and in the rain, this is much later, this is about the 70 years later, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So the accusation, that's Ezra 4 verse 6. Later on, uh, and you can read it on your own, uh, Ezra 4, 7 through 23, we'll touch on some of those things here in a moment, but it was just more of much of the same. Every time a new king came along, every time a new king came along, they, they started a new process of trying to prevent the building to start. So there is the influence from the outside. There's the opposition. There's the discouragement. There's the, the discouragement that sets on you and makes you think that you're not good enough. But there's a couple of things that I wrote down about discouragement. The first thing that I wrote down is fear of the unknown. Part of what the enemy does in way of discouragement is make the future unknown. Granted, we don't know the future but we're reminded that we don't know. It makes it difficult. It makes us remind us of our failure in the past to discourage us of our future. And a lot of times, uh, cause for the spiritual discouragement is unavoidable. It's intentional opposition. Here's some of the things that I wrote down that is, that is intentional opposition from the enemy. Philosophical. We're told, get help books. We're told there's another way. Over the last several years, and actually it's been going on for a lot longer, uh, Christianity has been pointed out as that it's dumb. It's inferior. It's a crutch. It plays off the emotion. And then you can list off all of the uh, philosophers that's come over time that has disagreed. Political. It's obvious there's political opposition to the gospel. I don't have to speak much of that. You could see it in the news. And then personal. There's personal attacks. Intentional opposition of personal attacks. Frustrate their plans, discourage them, frighten them. You're not good enough. But there are also some discouragement that takes place that I think that we bring on ourselves. I call them spiritual compromises. We're influenced by people with worldly priorities. 
When you wake up in the morning, what's your priority? In the middle of the day, what's your priority? And at the end of the evening, what's your priority? And it's real easy. For some, it's real easy for our worldly priorities is to make money, to take care of the kids, to make breakfast, just to get them to school, to have the business transaction take place, to fix relationships, to... And none of those necessarily are bad in themselves, but a spiritual compromise saying, I'll get to what I'm supposed to do with the Lord later, and I'll circle back when it's more convenient. The other one I wrote down is, is again, or questioning what the Bible makes clear. Have you ever read the Bible and thought, ooh, man, Jesus, that's rough. Well, yeah, it is. But then... When we try to dampen it down, soften the blow, that doesn't really mean it. What that means is, and although we may not say that, we just may skip a lot of the Old Testament altogether. But real quick, even before we jump ahead and and start picking apart some more of these attacks and discouragement, do you remember earlier uh, from last, last week when we talked about whenever the foundation was set and there was great praise but some of the people were very disappointed crying out. One way that we can be discouraged, again, is if we compare. Compare to what God used, had done in the past to what God is doing now. I wrote down that it is a joy stealer. And we don't have to go as far as comparing ourselves to other people, which I'm assuming we do, we can just simply compare what God did in the past to what he's doing now. The good old days. That joy stealing, that comparison, and I know I've probably brought that up the last three times, is very dangerous and shouldn't be messed with. God knows exactly what you need. That's what got King David in trouble with Bathsheba. You remember going, if you go back and read from 2 Samuel, you can read the whole account. When the prophet came to him and gave that whole illustration of the baby lamb and the rich man had all these and the poor man only had one. And David got so mad and then Daniel said, you, that's you. And he goes on a little bit later and he said, if you needed more, God would have given you more. What comparison does is say you just need more or what you had. See, what Ezra and the Israelites are going to face is actually a slowing in process of getting the building done. But even worse than finishing the building is a slowing down of worshiping God. Because in this gap, from verse 5, Ezra 5, to verse 24, is about 16 years. There's a 16-year gap to get this actual building done. It, and, and it actually ends up taking 20 years to build the temple. And it should have only taken them four years. Well, now, that's good profit right there. It takes you 20 years to do four years worth of work. And a lot of times, God's work is slow. God is patient. The same thing will happen in six years later. There's going to be legal objections to stop rebuilding the city. 
There's going to be discouraging, more discouraging days. There's going to be more criticism. Nehemiah is going to have to deal with it. Nehemiah is going to have to tell his builders, not only bring your hammer, but your sword. Now that's legit building right there. You're going to have to fight off the enemy while you're building. But then the question is, and the question that I keep finding myself is, why would God allow his work to be interrupted? Doesn't God want a temple? Why would he allow people to be discouraged? And the answer is simple but hard. Hard times produce better Christians. We're just better for it. I mean, James talks about, about the trial with, for your faith. It produces endurance, and endurance builds your character, and character builds your hope. But why would God allow his work to be interrupted? Isn't it important for him to have the temple? Well, for the Israelites, that's all they knew. We got to get a temple. We got to get a temple. We got to get a temple. We got to worship God. We got to worship God. And again, since the Ark of the Covenant is gone, completely gone, I'm just kidding when I say this, but maybe it's true. The Ark of the Covenant is probably buried next to Moses' body. I don't know. You're not going to find it. It's totally destroyed. And once this temple is built, the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord that comes in the cloud will never be no more. However, who actually shows up to the second temple? Who's dedicated at the second temple? Who's a little boy that's found teaching the other scholars? Jesus. Greater than the Shekinah glory that showed up, Jesus Christ shows up to the second temple. See, when we, when we misunderstand God's plan, and whenever we're working onto the Lord, we'll get distracted by what he intends to do in us. This whole rebuilding of the temple was simply simply to give God glory. It was to encourage the Israelites that they are now back in the promised land. But through this trial, it was to show it's not about the temple, it's about Christ who's coming. So as you consider what this means for us, just just. Let's just take a couple of minutes. So in 16 years, let's, let's go to Ezra 4, verse 24. There's about a 16-year gap, I told you. It says, so the work of the temple of God in Jerusalem has stopped, and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius Persia. But then there's another attack. Go over to Ezra 5, verse 3 and 5. But Tatian, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, and Shephazen and the colleagues soon arrived in Jerusalem and asked, who gave you permission to rebuild the temple and restore the structure? They also asked for the names of all the men working on the temple. But because their God was watching over them, the leaders of the Jews were not prevented from building until a report was sent to Darius and he returned his decision. So they just kept building. They didn't give their names. They didn't say who was in charge. They just kept building. And then you can go and read the rest of five. They sent this official letter, and Darius says, okay, what's going on here? And they say, well, you know, what the Israelites are actually doing, they say they're building a temple, but what they're doing is they're building an army, and they're not going to pay their taxes. And then if you say you're not going to pay your taxes, then, then you get some noise. So he stops them and prevents them. 
So then there's this whole back and forth at the end, or at the very beginning of Ezra 5. They send a reply saying, hey, let, let us tell you what's going on. And, and let's go to Ezra 5, verse 11 and 17. And I think this is key before we jump into it. I think this is so important for discouragement, for interruption, uh, for uh, attacks, is to be honest of what's going on. Let's see what they say. So this is the response. When the king says, the king of Persia says, why are you doing this? What's going on? And this is their reply, verse 11, Ezra 5, verse 11. This is their answer. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built here many years ago by a great king of Israel. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he abandoned them to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and exiled the people to Babylon. However, King Cyrus of Babylon, during the first year of his reign, issued a decree that the temple of God should be rebuilt. King Cyrus returned the gold and silver cups that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and placed in the temple of Babylon. These cups were taken from the temple and presented to a man named Shazbazar from King Cyrus appointed as governor of Judah. The king instructed him to return the cups to their place in Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God there on the original site. So this Shazbazar came and laid the foundation of the temple of God in Jerusalem. The people have been working on it ever since, though it is not yet completed. Therefore, if it pleases the king, we request that a search be made in the royal archive of the Babylon to discover whether King Cyrus ever issued a decree to rebuild the God's temple in Jerusalem, and then let the king send us his decision in this matter. There's so much going on. The very first thing they said is they identified who they were. We are servants of God. Your identity is always important in the opposition and discouragement. Go back to your identity. Your identity is in Christ. In other words, preach the gospel to yourself. A royal priesthood. I have been bought with a price. I can go on and on. I, I have a regular uh, encouragement that I give myself to remind me of who I am. I'm a human being, not a human doing. And it's real easy for me to get wrapped up in that. So first, they recognize who they are, servants of the God of heaven and earth. And what is, why are they doing that? They are rebuilding the temple many years ago. And here's the other thing. They admit or they confess their sin and the sins of their ancestors. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he abandoned to the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who destroyed this temple and exiled the people of Babylon. You notice here that he, they do not say the mean king Nebuchadnezzar came in Babylon. He destroyed everything. We were so innocent. We were just here and he came in and he's a big bully and we don't like him. No, they recognized what it was. They had sinned. And we talked about this the first week. They started worshiping other gods and they ignored the Sabbath. So for 70 years, they were in captivity. So when they're writing, writing this reply back to the king to explain what's going on, they identify who they are and then they go and they say, look, it was our fault why we lost the temple in the first place. Then they give the whole explanation how they got all this gold and silver back because earlier there was complaints that they stole it. They're like, no, King Cyrus did it. We promise, 
we laid the foundation, the people have stopped us. And in verse 17, it says, therefore, if it pleases the king, we request that a search be made in the royal archives of the Babylon, Babylon to discover whether King Cyrus ever issued the decree to rebuild the temple. All of this legal legislation, all of this suing, this modern day suing that these people were doing, so they went the route that was attacked. They, again, they identified who they are. They admitted their sin, or the sins of their family. They explained, they gave evidence of why they didn't steal the things, and then they asked them, go ahead and check your records. What we're saying is true. So they, he does. He goes back, and you remember the first week I showed you that looked like a, the corn on a cob-looking reminder. That's how uh, Cyrus kept all of his decrees. They used to be building pillars, buried them, and they found a decree. And then later on, you can read for yourself, uh, at the end of five, he says, okay, you're, you have permission. You're good to go. You can rebuild. So from that, they have 24 encouraging days after that. And they get right to work and they start doing it and they're so excited. And then more attacks. Go to Ezra 6, 13 through 15. This Tatian, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, Shelf Bazaar, and the colleagues compiled at once with the command of King Darius. Here's the response. So the Jews, the elders, continued their work and they were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edu. The temple was finally finished as had been commanded by God of Israel and decreed by Cyrus Darius and Arxaxerxes, the king of Persia. The temple was completed on March 12th during the sixth year of King Darius's reign. Five kings later, it's finally done. And we haven't even got to the wall yet. But one thing to note from Ezra 6, verse 14 so the Jewish elders continued their work and they were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edu. They were encouraged by the word of God. So as we consider this, we have to preach to ourselves. We have to be in the word. We have to gather like this. We have to be in Bible study. That's where the encouragement will come from. That's where we will, we will be reminded. It's important to know our identity, to confess our sin, because attacks are going to come. Uh, we talked about this in life group just last week. If we miss one life group or one Sunday, and then the following Sunday we come back, it feels like it's been a month. I don't know about you, but it feels like it's been forever. But through this whole time, and we'll see this over and over again as we uh, exit Ezra eventually and get into Nehemiah, every time there's discouragement, every time there's an attack, every time they walk away from the word of God, some prophet comes along, God sends a prophet and reminds them through his word that he is good. And it's praise of hope. The word gave them strength to get it done. You must give priority to the work. Because during this whole discouragement, when they couldn't build the temple, the people left and build their homes. That's the first thing that Haggai said, and we'll cover that next week. You take care of your homes, but what about the home, the temple of the Lord? So as we close, we're, we're going to uh, sing a song called Ever Be. And there's a line that I think is a great reminder to us as we face discouragement and opposition and I'll read it. 
because I can't sing. It says, you father the orphan. Your kindness makes us whole. You shoulder our weakness and your strength becomes our own. You are making me like you, clothing me in white, bringing beauty from ashes, for you will have your bride. Free of all her guilt and rid of all her shame. And know by her true name, and it is why I sing your praises, will ever be on my lips. And that's what it is. That's, that's what the Israelites experienced. All of that. We were all orphans. And his kindness made us whole. He shouldered our weakness and he became our strength because he will have his bride and we are his bride. But we must stay in connection with Christ. We must be in his word. We must be in community. We must allow the Holy Spirit. And we must confess our sin. We are going to sing that song in a minute. We are going to receive communion. I just want to give just brief instructions on communion, how we're going to try it this morning. Obviously, we can't necessarily do it the way that we've done in the past, where you get up and receive your own elements. We're going to sing a couple of songs, three songs. There are going to be some guys that come down and pass the plates down the row so you don't have to come and get it. I would suggest that you pass the plate, then grab your elements, because if you grab your elements, then you're trying to pass the plates, but you do what you want. Um, When it gets to the end, if you could pass it behind you, also there's a little cup holder. I think that's what it's called, right in front of your seat. Uh, You can set the cup there. If there's not one there, you get to hold it in your hand. So we're going to try it. But more importantly, communion is a reminder of what Christ did for us. You are invited to receive communion with us if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you believe that he is your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And as we move quickly through a couple of chapters here, we just saw discouragement after discouragement after discouragement. And it's no surprise that we can often be attacked and discouraged ourselves, Lord. God, will you help when the discouragement comes, when the attack comes, will you help us be reminded of who we are in you? That our identity is in you and you alone, not in our performance, not in what we did, done. Lord, of course we don't want to sin anymore, but yet we are sinners saved by your grace. And Lord, let us be quick to confess that sin to one another, Lord, and Let us be honest of where we're at in our walk with you, Lord. Let us also not fall into a trap of comparing. We've talked about that. Not just comparing to other people, but comparing what you did to or for us in the past and expecting you to do the same thing. When you have the overview of the world, let us rest in that. Lord, as we sing this song, let us um, be reminded that you... Father of the orphan, and we are orphan, and you bring beauty from ashes, truly. And we are your bride, and you have freed us from our guilt and the shame, Lord. So, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, we thank you for the ultimate sacrifice, Lord. I pray for anyone in here who may not know the freedom that we have in you, that today could be the day.
Lord, we thank you and we love you for who you are. We praise your name. Praise and.